Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Good morning to you. Of course, John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just a reminder, of course, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We'll let you keep this discussion interactive. Anything that I say, anything you want to talk about, we'll obviously keep it going in a world of baseball. And lots of things I do want to get into. I want to get into my blog. I want to get into some interviews that I've recorded over the past week. And also want to get into a couple things that piss me off about what fans think about free agency and the overreaction. And, oh, my God, the player's getting so much money. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But what I first want to start off with is an interview I recorded this past week with longtime New York sportscaster Len Berman. And Len, of course, was, and you'll actually find out before he ended up associating himself with NBC, where he's been since 1982 until 2009. And obviously he's doing his own thing now. Len Berman Sports, that's all sports. You know, feel free to check that out. But, you know, he was with CBS before that. And before that was, was in Boston for um, WBZ TV from 1973 to 1978. And over the course of his broadcasting career, he's had the opportunity to cover World Series, Super Bowls, the Olympics. And, you know, he this is a guy that really goes back so far, you know, in regards to sporting events that he's covered. He's also written a series of books, and nobody got hurt, of course, which is his catchphrase and, uh, you know, the sportscast that he's done for all these years. He's done uh, the greatest moments in sports, the 25 greatest baseball players of all time. And like I said, a guy who's certainly been around the world and been involved in so much going on in sports. And I definitely enjoyed recording this spot. So hopefully you guys enjoy this interview I recorded with longtime sportscaster Len Berman. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with longtime sportscaster uh, Len Berman. Len, what's going on, man? Everything's good. Uh, you know, it was a great baseball season. Love, love the uh, the job the Red Sox did, and uh, looking forward to seeing how all the winter free agency uh, shakes out. Should be very interesting. Yeah, no question about it, man. As everything you know gets started now, you see a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of just uh, throwing you know uh, guesses of things that will happen. You know, a lot of this stuff really won't you know really matriculate until you know at least the end of this month. But you know, obviously, leaves a lot of different uh, possibilities obviously for a lot of the local teams. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm 
fascinating to see how the Robinson Cano uh, story shakes out because I think the conventional wisdom in baseball now is that these long-term huge contracts are killers, not only to your own payroll, but to, uh, you know, towards the end of the contract, they're just uh, 10 years. So that's, that's really the most fascinating aspect to see how the Cano thing plays out. And of course, and I'll tell you, a lot has changed, obviously, over the years with, you know, free agency, obviously, first coming into baseball in the, the mid-70s, and then the contracts being so much more lucrative, not only in the, you know, the average annual value, but, you know, like you just mentioned, the long-term part of it. You know, you sign a big player to a big deal, you may get some uh, some benefits within the first couple of years, but you're also paying for the end of the contract when things, you know, aren't so good in, let's say, year seven, eight, or, you know, in some cases, ten years. Well, that's the story, and now uh, with, with the luxury taxes becoming a, a bit more onerous, uh, that really becomes a factor. That's why it seems like the Yankees have made noise about, about trying to uh, you know, cut down on payroll, and you just don't have the open checkbooks now. You certainly saw it in Los Angeles, but I'm not sure how much more that can go on. No, exactly, man. And Len, of course, you know, you've been covering sports for, for many, many years. Uh, you know, let's let's just let's just get into, you know, your you know, what really got you into doing what you're doing because obviously this is something that started a long time ago. You know, you got yourself, you know, involved with cer- certain uh, sports and covering sports. But you know, tell tell listeners a little bit about what kinda got you going in the whole direction. Well, I guess what drew me to sports was Mickey Mantle. I was a kid growing up in New York City, and the Yankees were in the World Series just about every year in my youth. And all that mattered to me as a kid was whether or not Mickey had a home run or not. So I think that was my first attraction towards sports. And that drew me into the other sports as well, but never as much as baseball and the Yankees. Uh, and then I had a, a teacher in high school in New York City at Stuyvesant who thought I had a good voice, and he thought I should think about becoming an actor. And I never really thought of my voice in any capacity before. And then when I got to Syracuse as a student, I just gravitated towards the radio station. I'm not really thinking of sports per se, but they had openings in the sports department, unlike the other areas, and I'm, I kind of fell into it. So it was fun. And a lot of kids go to college radio stations because it's fun. And I just decided to ride the wave and see how far it would take me. First, it took me to a news job in Dayton, Ohio, where I was a newscaster and anchorman because I couldn't find a sports job. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to get a sports job in Boston in the 70s, which was a terrific sports town. And every team in Boston in the 70s had a shot. They were either in the championship round or had a shot at it. And uh, it just grew from there. And I, and I wound up in New York in 1979, and I've been here ever since. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, back to your to your time in Boston because obviously you just mentioned you know, you cover you got a chance to cover Boston sports really uh, around a time where you know most of the teams were very competitive. You had you know obviously the the Red Sox who got to the World Series in '75 and later on were very competitive with the Yankees in '77 and '78. Uh, you know uh, what, what was really uh, you know kind of going through your mind at, at that time? Was it you know were you, were you did you get an opportunity to kind of appreciate things from you know maybe a Boston perspective as opposed to, you know, being a kind of a New York fan growing up? Absolutely. And it started in Ohio because when I was in Dayton, Ohio, even though I was covering news, I did get to cover some sports stories. And that was the time of the Big Red Machine. And, and, and Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Sparky Anderson, they were enormous heroes in, in Ohio. So it certainly taught me 
uh, objectivity in, in a nutshell. And then when I got to Boston, not only did I cover the Red Sox and all the other teams, I was the voice of the Boston Celtics for five years, as well as Patriots preseason football on television. So I certainly understood that you can't be a fan if you're going to be on the air. And I was a New Yorker, you know, working on the air in Boston. I certainly took the things from the Boston perspective. My friends who would listen to my Celtics broadcast would say, well, what's all this focus on Don Chaney and JoJo White in the backcourt? You know, why are you, why are you talking more about Clyde Frazier and Roman Rollins? It's just a, a function of where you broadcast and the, what your perspective is. And I think it was a great learning ground for me and really set me up. And then when the Big East formed in 1979-80, they tapped me as their first television broadcaster. So I obviously had New York and, and Boston broadcast experience, and those were two of the big markets they were trying to track at the time. And, um, and it was great. I, I really, uh, Boston years were wonderful. Not only did you have the Red Sox in the World Series in 75, the Celtics won two championships during that time in 74 and 76, and they drafted Larry Bird just before I left Boston. Bruins were in the finals. Uh, they had won a couple of Stanley Cups. They were in the finals, losing to Philadelphia in the mid-70s. And the Patriots were the best team not to make the Super Bowl. They really uh, had a hard luck game in Oakland, and they were really the best team in football that year, and they didn't make it. So great, great sports town. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, obviously the timing of you being there certainly gave you kind of an open mind to everything going on in, in Boston sports, which I think was phenomenal. And, of course, you know, 1979, you end up, uh, you know, going going to CBS, so you get back to New York. I'm sure that must have been a pretty good feeling for you, right? Well, I was just, um, interesting. even though I grew up in Queens, I had no burning desire to be on the air in New York City. And all of a sudden, all my relatives and my parents would sit and watch the local news, and there I was. And, uh... It was, uh, and then in 1979, not only were the, you know, the Yankees, they wound up in the, in the 81 World Series, but the Islanders started their run with Stanley Cups, and just, uh, just, it's just tremendous. I mean, when I, when I think of covering local sports news, essentially from 79 to about, uh, wow, 2000 and something, 2009, whatever my last year was at Channel 4. Anything of all the championships between the Yankees and the, and, and the Mets won a championship, and the Islanders, the Rangers, the Devils all won championships, uh, uh, the, the, the Giants, you know, winning Super Bowls, and the, and the only team that didn't win championships uh, when I, during that run were the, were the basketball teams, but they were both in finals, and the Jets, who got to at least the conference finals, so uh, a couple of conference finals while I was in town. So, um, uh, great, great sports run. You know, the New York sports experience is, is terrific. But it's just different from Boston because what you have in Boston is you have six states that focus on one team uh, in New England. And in New York, it's, you know, it's split loyalties because you have more than one uh, team in each sport. Absolutely. Once again, John Pielli here with longtime sportscaster Len Berman. Now, you know, obviously, you you know, you had a chance to cover sports from different perspectives, and you know, as you do, as you read, you know, the newscasts of sports for you know for first for CBS and then for a long time for for NBC. You know, you 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 always seem to be able to work in other things that are going on in sports, and you know, people that you know look for, look at sports from a New York perspective may you know because of that, you know are able to have more of an open mind to other stuff that's kind of going on in the sports. You know, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what, what led to that and, you know, obviously your, you know, your ability to work other things going on other than just what's going on in New York sports. Well, it was a challenge from a couple of perspectives. Number 
on, and as time went on, you had the challenge of ESPN and, and, and general managers of television stations thinking that the real sports fan would watch ESPN, and it was true in, 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 in part. Um, the beauty of the local sports cast is people knew what time it was on and at what point they could get all of the information that they wanted about their local sports team where you didn't have to wait through an hour of sports center to get, to get something that might be of interest to you locally. Um, but the other challenge is that, as TV stations will remind you all the time, is that most of the people watching the local news are not sports fans. They're there for the weather or for other reasons. And it becomes important for you to broadcast sports in a way that the non-sports fans can understand. So that's why I always look for more of those human interest stories. Once again, John Pielli here with Len Berman. Now, you know, you, you obviously uh, had a chance, you know, to, to write a series of books. And, you know, you wrote, uh, you know, the book, and, and nobody got hurt, which obviously is, you know, your catchphrase, which is something that you, you brought up on several, you know, several one of your newscasts. Tell us a little bit about what, what involved you in putting that book together. Well, um, interesting uh, literary agent. We actually brought up a book called Spanning the World, an adult book. Um, left the market several years ago. And it's just my experiences in television and sports. And at the same time, a different publisher thought they'd like to do a kid's book based on spanning the world, which is my monthly collection of bloopers, which still airs on NBC's Today Show. And we decided to call it Nobody Got Hurt, and we put out a paperback, a little short little bloopers for kids, and then we put out a second one called it Nobody Got Hurt Too. And another publisher came along and said, you know, let's put together a, a book called Greatest Moments of Sports, aimed at young readers, and we put that one out, and that included an audio CD of some of the play-by-play moments. And they wanted a second one, they called it the 25 Greatest Baseball Players of All Time, which was tough to put together because it's a very hard um, chore to, to narrow your list to 25 great players. There's so many terrific players out there, so I had a blue ribbon panel help me out on that, broadcasters former uh, baseball players and executives helped put that list together for me, and I just wrote it. I didn't take any, I didn't want to take blame for not including Yogi Berra and Sandy Koufax and Roberto Clemente in the top 25. And then the same publisher came up with another idea for uh, Greatest Moments of Sports Upsets and Underdogs. So it's really a series of three books for young readers, and I, uh, I'm very proud of them. Oh, absolutely, and I tell you, you know, it gets to the you know the 25 greatest baseball players of all time, and you know, you get, it can lead to a huge discussion. Obviously, the debate about all the different eras in Major League Baseball of how you know how much you want to include what's happened recently, you know, in regards to the greatest players to ever play in the game. So I'm sure that that book in itself was probably the more dif- the most difficult one to put together. Well, it's difficult only from the standpoint of getting people to vote on who those players were. And, you know, when I tell people that Koufax isn't there and Campanella, and then you go to sell a book and you tell people in Detroit that Al Kaline didn't make it, and you tell people of Baltimore that Jim Palmer and Brooks Robinson didn't make it, and Cal Ripken, and, and when you tell people in Texas that Nolan Ryan didn't make it, uh, it's, it's not one Chicago Cub or White Sox player in the book. It, it's a... Uh, it became a tough book to market from that standpoint because it's a very, the pyramid is awfully narrow at the top. And it turns out we had six pitchers. Uh, you know, some are obvious. Uh, I think they're all fairly obvious, but we had Walter Johnson and Christy Mathewson and uh, Cy Young, of course, and uh, more modern pitchers were Bob Feller and Bob Gibson. And Warren Spahn, the winningest lefty of all time. That leaves out a 
pitchers. So you did the 25 greatest pitchers of all time. Now, if the book were written in 25 years, would Mariano Rivera make it? I don't know. Would uh, Albert Pujols? That would be an interesting question. The only active player in the book is, is Alex Rodriguez, and he certainly uh, <laughs> conjures up all kinds of problems on his own. No, absolutely, and I tell you, you know, you got to figure out what you want to include and what you don't want to include, because obviously you have a lot of the bias now in regards to baseball with the steroids, and you know, the people that are adamant against it, you know, don't want any part of what's happened really over the last 20 years or so. But I, I think it's time, as time goes by in Major League Baseball, I mean, it's still going to have to be considered an era. Whether you know these, these statistics that were put up were so artificially enhanced, I mean, they still did happen. I think the people who voted on my panel were convinced that Alex Rodriguez uh, would have been a great baseball player had he not uh, taken steroids, and that's that's you know that's what the argument's going to be eventually with these people against the Hall of Fame or not. You know, Barry Bonds was an amazing baseball player, and many believe that he's a Hall of Famer without taking steroids. Others believe that the, the likes of McGuire and Sosa. Are, are only steroid and enhanced, and that's why they don't deserve to be in it. But Alex Rodriguez was a mar remarkable talent, and, and forget the steroids, if he had not switched to third base because of Derek Jeter, he would have been considered the greatest shortstop of all time. To go back and find the greatest shortstop of all time, you get a consensus on that. Just to go back 100 years to Honus Wagner. I mean, that's, that's, that's how good Alex Rodriguez is and was, but. Of course, he'll be forever tainted by the steroids. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, a guy that you know certainly probably wouldn't be, you know, in in the discussion because he didn't play that long. A guy by the name of Vern Stevens who played for the St. Louis Browns and the Red Sox. You know, and and I think his career only lasted about ten years, but the numbers he put up were certainly as good as any shortstop ever. But you know, obviously, you know, you look at shortstop being such a defense first type of position, the way it's been really for the better part of about eighty to a hundred years, and you see obviously. Alex Rodriguez, and you know, around the time that Cal Ripken came up, you saw a big change in you know shortstop becoming more of an offensive position as it is today. Yeah, it's just a fascinating discussion. If you had names like Chris Speaker, we don't make it. Uh, uh, there are people who will tell you the Lefty Grove, perhaps, was the greatest pitcher of all time. Uh, all kinds. Of, it's, it's great. It's, it's a great discussion. Um, I enjoyed writing it. I just didn't. I didn't enjoy having to defend it all the time. There are obvious no-brainers in the book, like Mike Hero, Mitch Mantle, and Babe Ruth, and Lazare, and John DiMaggio, and Ted Williams, and Stan Musial, and Hank Aaron, and Frank Robinson, and Johnny Bench, and you know, I put a P. Rose in there, and I certainly believe that he deserves to be in there, and Mike Schmidt, more modern players in there, and uh, Jimmy Fox. We actually put one Euro leaguer in there, um, Josh Gibson. Absolutely, and uh, you know, no matter who you put in there, uh, you're obviously going to leave yourself subject to some sort of criticism. Once again, John Pialli here with Len Berman, and of course, you know, Len, you obviously, you know, you, you know, since you've left NBC, you're still working on, you know, some stuff yourself within your own website. You know, tell listeners about, you know, what got into that and your blog and everything you're doing now. Yeah, I sent out a, a free daily email to thousands of people around the world that is called Len's Top 5, and I just kind of muse about some of the things going on in sports, my own personal twist on it. I also include some spanning the world highlights that people may have missed. And uh, if anybody's interested, they can go to thatsports.com and sign up. 
It's free. There's no advertising or anything like that. It's just kind of a labor of love. And I've been doing it now for several years. Um, I may or may not write another book. The publisher has come to me. He's down. Writing another one, I'm not sure I want to. It's not the writing that's tough. It's the selling of a book. People who aren't reading that much you know, have to really pitch a book hard and, and actually write it. I'm not sure I want to go through that. But anyway, I may. And um, I've got some other radio and TV projects that, that we're pitching. So um, I'm just not retired. That's all. I'm not, I'm not on the air every night, but I'm not, I'm not going away just yet. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, Len, you've had the opportunity to cover World Series, Super Bowls, the Olympics. Um, was there any one event that you've covered in, you know, in your lifetime, in your career, you know, uh, with, associated with sports that stands out over any other one? Well, I, I mean, no, there, you know, there's several that are in the top five. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the Giants Super Bowl over, over the Patriots is one of them. Uh, Rangers winning the Stanley Cup is another one. Um, Roland Gardner uh, beating the undefeated Russian and, and Greco-Roman wrestling. I was assigned to that at the last minute. I didn't know much about Greco-Roman wrestling at the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And other than the miracle on ice, uh, Roland pulled off arguably the greatest upset in, in, in Olympic history. By winning that, that was that was very special. Uh, some of the East games I did uh, were phenomenal. Sold out, Syracuse Dome, and Georgetown comes down the court and wins the game at the buzzer. Just, uh, I've, I've been fortunate. You know, I've been, I've been a lot of great sports events and all the different sports. Just, uh, just happy to be a part of it. It's no small way. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Len, I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and, you know, keep up the good work. Thanks. Uh, best of luck to you down the road. Definitely a great spot there with Len Berman, and obviously it's always great to catch up with one of the best that, you know, has been around for so long and obviously is known so well in the New York market, the New York media, and, you know, a guy who grew up as a Yankee fan to see the Yankees when they were, when they were good in the 60s, to see them when they're not so good, and, you know, so much has happened really in the history of not just New York sports, but sports in a time that Len Berman's had the opportunity to cover it. So definitely great catching up with him and, you know, all the different things he got to go over there. But John Pielli here, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of this show. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is an amazing school. It has many different qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do Chop Shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear His direction for our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community. Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two 
accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454, and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Oh, yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, Pestball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli like we do every week. We keep the discussion going, and sometimes, you know, the discussion goes way later than the actual duration of the broadcast, which I don't mind. Like I said, I'll tweet back and forth with as many people as possible that, you know, got comments, got questions, want to, you know, go through some certain points that I bring up throughout the program. It's something that, I, that I've enjoyed doing since we switched the format of the show to be able to continue to have this program interactive. But like I said, tweet at me, John underscore Pielli. One thing I want to jump right into is, you know, kind of a piggyback off a conversation I had last week. And I talked last week about, you know, the way free agents set the market for how much money they're going to get paid. And, you know, people are always complaining, oh, it's too much money. It's too much money. And the people, you know, generally sometimes it's a little bit of a jealousy based on what kind of job they have themselves, their own personal income. And I know it bothers a lot of people that athletes, you know, even, you know, particularly baseball players get paid so much money. And, you know, it becomes a situation where it feels like they're banking for themselves as opposed to understanding baseball being the business that it is. And whether your favorite team is the New York Yankees or the New York Mets or the Philadelphia Phillies, and obviously the three teams that we cover most here on the MTR radio network, you know, you got to understand that, you know, they have within themselves the ability to spend money and to pay the players that they have on their current team. And I know a lot has gone on with the Mets over the last couple of years with their payroll being dropped and the Madoff thing, the whole thing. And people kind of want to be personal accountants of the New York Mets. And you got to understand this. You got to understand that when it comes down to free agency and it comes down to off-season moves that are made, which involves trades and free agencies and, you know, different types of pickups, that players cost money. And we talk about free agents and the top free agents that are out there on any given season, the top players out there are going to get paid. So you could have your fantasy wish list of what players you like to see your favorite team pick up, but you have to understand that they're going to get the most lucrative deal on the market. And if your favorite team is going to pick up an impact player, a top free agent, they're going to have to spend the amount of money that it takes to bring that player in. And that's a problem a lot of people have because they don't get that. 
They just think that, wow, you know, every player goes out there, they get paid so much money. And when their favorite player or the player that they had their eyes set on the most, uh, you know, goes to another team, you know, all we hear is talk about, oh, God, they get paid so much money. I'm glad my favorite team didn't sign them. And then you say that about every free agent that's out there, and all of a sudden your favorite team has not upgraded themselves in a proper way that it needs to to be competitive for the next season. So what way do you want it? Do you want your team to be competitive or not? Because if you are, at some point you're going to have to spend. At some point you're going to have to sign a player to a contract that deep down you might not feel that that player is worth that exact amount of money. I mean, for Met fans to sit there and think of an offseason that they want Nelson Cruz and Jahani Peralta and you know, Curtis Granderson all signed with the Yankees, if the Mets do that, they're going to have to spend some money. They're going to have to spend uh, maybe a four- or five-year contract for both Cruz and Granderson if they want them to be on the Mets. A Peralta is going to cost probably at least two or three years guaranteed. And none of these contracts go for cheap nowadays. You're talking in, you know, where the qualifying offer that's set out there at about $14 million, you're looking at about three $14 million players. So if you're a Mets fan, do you all of a sudden say, all right, well, I wanted these players on my team, but not for that price. Well, if you say not for that price, what are you going to end up doing? And I, I joked last week about an offseason for the Mets that would have included Corey Hart and Raphael Forcal and Michael Morse. You know, all guys who obviously are low-risk, high-reward type of guys coming off of injuries, and in Morse's case, injuries and ineffective play. And then you put that out there and you say, all right, well, the budget's been set low. The team didn't spend a lot of money on these players, and that part is great. But what are you getting? You're probably getting a crap product. You're probably getting players that aren't going to be able to go out there and make this team better going into the 2014 season. And the bottom line is you need to bring in an impact type of player. And it may not have to be through the free agent market. If Sandy Alderson is thinking that the price for some free agents and top free agents is a little too high right now, then maybe he explores the market for a trade. But obviously there's players that are going to be traded to this, during this offseason that are getting paid a lot of money. So do you go out there and you pick up what may be considered a bad contract? Either way, you're going to have to pay a player a certain amount of money and probably more money than you, the fan, would want to see that player get paid. And that's the hard part here because you have to draw a difference between, all right, I don't want to bring in bad contracts. I don't want to see my team sign another Jason Bay or extend another Johan Santana after he's acquired in a trade and have to pay him all that money for a lack of production. There's always that fear that comes in there. Any player that signs as a free agent or that gets traded for that's on a, a long contract, there's always the chance that that player could get hurt. There's always that chance that that player could diminish in regards to their productivity and kind of not be the same player that they were a couple of years ago. Because a lot of times free agent contracts are signed for what they've done before, not necessarily what they're guaranteed to do later on. And fans have a hard time understanding that. But, you know, let's be honest, if the Mets want to get themselves to a point where they're going to upgrade their offense, they're going to address their offensive needs, they're going to have to bring an impact type of player in. And I don't know if it's Curtis Granderson. I don't know if it becomes Jacoby Ellsbury or Shinsu Chu, who you feel, obviously, with the thought of a $100 million contract, something that the Mets are probably not going to do. But in the end, the Mets are going to sign a player or two to a lucrative deal. 
and it's not going to go well with some fans who are going to go out there and criticize it and say, oh, my God, I can't believe they're paying somebody a lot of money. But, you know, this is the same person that goes out there and says, why aren't they spending money? You have to spend money, and sometimes, it, you know, you have to spend maybe a little more than what you may be anticipating spending to get the player that you want. And, yeah, that's the way it works out in free agency. And the Mets have not been active in free agency for a couple of years now. So maybe some fans just don't understand the way free agency works. Because top players, players that have waited six years of Major League service to get to free agency and have made the All-Star team and have put up good numbers and have been extremely productive players for years upon years have earned that opportunity to get that big contract. And they're going to get it from somewhere. If you're not going to pay them, if you don't want your favorite team to pay them, somebody else is going to do that. And when somebody else goes and does that, that team got better while your team did not. And this thought that there's going to be these bargains out there, that all these players, you know, there's, there's going to be reasons that they're going to take less money to go to wherever, it's just not going to happen. And you have to understand that. You have to understand that players, all these top players, are going to get paid. I'm going to touch on this a little bit later on. But right now, I want to touch on a couple things going on right now. Marlon Bird signs a two-year deal with the Philadelphia Phillies, paying him about $8 million a season. I think it was something that you would expect him to get after the year that he had last year. He was a guy that's been a proven player, obviously has uh, you know the PED suspension that he served in 2012. But you know, very good year with the Mets and Pirates last year. Phillies go out there, get themselves a right fielder, a guy that they could put in the middle of the lineup. And obviously, if he could duplicate his 2013 season, it's going to be a good deal for the Philadelphia Phillies. The awards are going out there now. You hear that Will Myers wins the AL Rookie of the Year award. Jose Fernandez ends up edging Yasiel Puig in the National League. I personally would have gone with Puig because I think Puig had much more of an impact on his team, nothing to take anything away from what Jose Fernandez did this year. Jose Fernandez was phenomenal. He established himself as one of the top pitchers in the National League. He made the all-star team. He was the one bright spot on what was a a terrible season for the Miami Marlins, which we all knew was going to be going in. And I don't have a problem with him winning the Rookie of the Year award. I just would have gone with Puig. And I know Puig, uh, you know, obviously unrested some writers and some people are upset with the way he goes about it and, you know, the whole, uh, you know, accelerator things that he does, you know, to kind of uh, upset some people. And I don't know if that had an impact in a vote, but the one thing that I would point to is the fact that the Dodgers were falling apart coming into this season. They were doing terrible. They were off to a ridiculously horrible start. You thought that Don Mattingly was going to lose his job. You thought about all the money that the Los Angeles Dodgers went out there and spent to get Zach Greinke. They, you know, the amount of money that they're paying their outfielders. Adrian Gonzalez gets paid a lot. You know about you know, Clayton Kershaw and the deal that he's going to eventually get. Hanley Ramirez. All the guys that are involved with the Los Angeles Dodger team and how everything was not going right. Don Mattingly was getting fired. Ned Coletti was on the hot seat. Everything was going in a negative for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But they bring up Yasiel Puig, and obviously it had to do with some of the injuries that they had. They didn't have a spot in the outfield for Yasiel Puig because Carl Crawford was playing left, Matt Kemp was playing center, and Andre Ethier was playing right. So they go up and they recall Yasiel Puig, and what does he do? Not only does he perform at a high level and put up phenomenal numbers for the duration of the season, but he carried that team on his back. He got that team to a point where they were 12 games out in the National League Western Division and got them to a point where they won the division going away. To me, I would have leaned on that as the determining factor. Remember, you don't 
determine the awards for the regular season based on postseason performance. And I understand that the Dodgers were in the playoffs, even if they went out there to win the World Series, that wouldn't, in my mind, increase the chance that Yasiel Puig should have won the award. But what I'm saying is the fact that Yasiel Puig changed the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he got them to a point where they were from a last-place team to a first-place team based on him being on the field. And I know Hanley Ramirez had something to do with it. I know the pitchers that they had with Kershaw and Ryu and Greinke and the bullpen, which got himself you know, in, a, in very good shape. Brian Wilson obviously being the last piece there. But you know, the Dodgers got themselves to a point where they were a last-place team after a couple months. And they were probably the best team in baseball based on record after that. And a lot of it had to do with Yasiel Puig. And to me, that's something that's more important than just individual numbers. Now, Jose Fernandez, if you want to compare the numbers and say that Jose Fernandez pitched the entire season for the Miami Marlins, that's fine. But just remember, he was babied within the first couple months of the season, particularly in the first month. He was only going five innings. He was only throwing about 80 pitches. So, you know, here's a guy that didn't go out there full throttle through a whole full 162. I know he was in the Marlins rotation the entire time, and obviously as the season went on, particularly after the first month, he became one of the top pitchers in a National League. He deserves credit for it, and I understand that, and that's why I don't have an issue with Jose Fernandez getting the award. But personally, I would have given the award to Yasiel Puig, a guy who changed the culture of the Los Angeles Dodgers, brought them from a last-place situation to a to a team that ends up winning the division, going away, and getting into the playoffs. But once again, John Pialli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to jump into a break, be back finishing up the first hour. A lot more stuff going on after this. Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Monday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WING. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal. Served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there! This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio.
Back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli, yada, yada, yada. I said this before. I'm going to jump right into an interview I recorded with former Major League infielder Frank Bullock. And Frank played in the Major Leagues with the Montreal Expos in 1993 and the Anaheim Angels in 1998. He spent the best years of his career, though, playing in, in Japan, where he put up uh, ridiculous home run numbers from 1999, 2000, and 2001. And that's definitely interesting to get into. But, you know, also had a very good minor league career, was a guy that, you know, was in a situation, particularly with the Expos coming up, that there was a lot of players up at the same time, and he kind of just, you know, needed the opportunity to play somewhere else. But, you know, a guy who had a very good minor league career, hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Expos and Angels infielder Frank Bullock. John Pielli here with former Major League infielder Frank Bullock. Frank, what's going on, man? Uh, not so much. I'm doing fine. How are you? Oh, pretty good, man. Pretty good. And of course, Frank, you know, you, uh, you, know, you came up, you were originally drafted by the Brewers in a 1987 draft. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the beginning, you know, you first getting associated with professional baseball. Well, I started down climbing all playing. You know, for the high school there, and after the high school, I started in the teaching program, and after that, I mean, during that, that's when uh, you keep advancing to those all-star games, and you wind up for the East-West all-star game in Warrior Town, Pennsylvania. That's how, like, the scouts on me play. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And, you know, of course, you know, you end up getting, you know, you get discovered, you end up going through the Brewers system a little bit. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that, you know, your experience playing, you know, in, in the Brewers system and what you what you thought of your first uh, chance playing professionally. Uh, it was exciting. Uh, you know, it's like you said, you know, and uh, I can't remember who was playing third base for the Brewers, but they just had a lot of talent in AAA and the big leagues. So in the Brewers, I went to Seattle. And of course, you know, in 1990, you end up having a breakout year playing, you know, and you know, pretty much at the lower levels, but you end up driving in over 100 runs, you hit over 300. Uh, you know, you, you know, this thing, things seem to be coming together pretty good for you at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was in April, and I was California League MVP, and then next year, that's when. I got traded to Seattle and got put on the 40 man roster, so yeah, things started to work out then. Yeah, and then uh, of course, you know, the next season you, know, you move yourself up a little bit playing in, uh, you know, double A and triple A. Um, you know, did you feel like you had a chance to, uh, to to break the major league roster with the with the Mariners in 1992? Um, I thought so, but, you know, they, uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess they didn't need me at that time. I mean, I think Edgar Martinez was playing third, or if he wasn't playing third, he was DH. And then they had, uh, I think maybe Mike Flowers playing a little bit of third base, and maybe some other utility guys. And 
I thought they could have used me because I'm a switch hitter, you know, kind of hit left hand, but then I just, uh, I guess I stayed in AAA that year, I guess. Yeah, and of course you end up being uh, traded at the end of the 1992 season to the Montreal Expos. That's where you get yeah. really your first chance uh, at, at the big leagues with the Expos in chance to, you know, pretty much play a full major league season like you did that year. And of course, you know, after that you end up bouncing around a little bit. You know, uh, you know, did you ever hit any point, you know, after you got your first taste of uh, the major leagues between ninety three and ninety eight that you 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 know you ever thought you weren't gonna get back? Yeah, I mean, there was uh, you know, I guess in, Ninety-seven. I guess that's when my agent. Oh no, maybe in ninety-five or ninety-six. I go, I can't get a job or something. I had to go to Mexico to play one year. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's when teams weren't looking so well. But I ended up playing well in Mexico, and then my agent ended up getting me a job. Uh, I guess with the Angels. Yeah. No, yeah, and then in '97 with the Angels, of course, you know, as, you know, playing for you know Double A, mostly Triple A, end up putting up some real good numbers and kind of establishing yourself. Get yourself another another cup of coffee with the Angels. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience and what it felt like to get back to the big leagues. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, it was great to get back to the big leagues, but I was, you know, pretty much a uh, utility guy. I played. Third once a week to give that guy a break. I played uh, first base. I think I played once in a great while. Mainly pinch in, and I played right field twice. Now, I didn't really get a good chance to to hit and play. You know what I mean? Yeah, and of course, like, you know, after that, you end up, once again, John Pielli here with former Major League infielder Frank Bullock, you get a chance to go over to Japan, and that's when you, you end up having some really good seasons there. And I'm sure that must have been a little bit of a relief to you to get, get a chance to go out there and play every day and obviously, you know, the numbers you were producing. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was really, really glad to, to go to Japan and get to play every day. I mean, I... Uh, I mean, I, I consider myself a, 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 a good hitter, but not a real good pinch hitter because I need I need to swing every day, just like golf. If you want to be a good golfer, you got to do it every day. Now, and in Japan, you know, I got to hit every day. I faced some really good Japanese pitch you now, like that. I just got to get on the big leagues and uh, you know. Few other ones that I can't even remember now, but you know, I put up 
Yeah, and of course, you know, I, you know, you end up hitting, you know, 29 home runs, 31 home runs, back-to-back -back seasons. Um, you know, at, at the point that you, uh, you know, you, you end up finishing your time in the Japanese uh, Central League, um, did you did you consider making another shot or taking another crack at the big leagues? No, I mean, I, the reason why I left Japan, I, uh, I ended up uh, you know, severe tendonitis in my left knee. My, my, my leg was kind of giving out when I was swinging. And uh, my left shoulder, you know, when I was swinging, missed my whole arm would go numb. So I, I was, my body just kind of had it. And once again, John Pielli here with Frank Bullock. Now, is there, a, you know, was there a certain time in your career, maybe a you know day either in the major leagues or over in Japan, uh, some something that kind of stands out to you to maybe make like your best memory playing professional baseball? Uh, well, I mean, in Philadelphia, you know, I think hit a three-run homer off of uh, Kurt Schilling and all the, I mean, I think they had like two or three buses from Mount Carmel to see that like on a Thursday night. So that was, that was uh, one of my high points. And then uh, my very first at bat in Japan was a home run. So they were pretty, uh, they're, they're like the high points. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Do you have any uh, any regrets? You know, going back, you know, your your uh, your chance. You know, you covered, of course, about 15 seasons playing baseball professionally. Anything that you regret from that time? No, just uh, I, I wish I got better results and better circumstances when I was with Montreal. We just had a lot of talent, and everybody was like the same age. So he was just Felipe Lou was just shuffling everybody everywhere. And then after the Angels, I just kind of wish maybe I would have got over to Japan either two or three years sooner when I was healthy, or I could have played two or three more years until I was 40, 41, and I wasn't hurt. Uh, listen, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you had a good ride. Obviously, to be, you know, you know, as you know, to be in there as long as you would, yeah, you know, there's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. Listen, Frank, I want to thank you for having some time today. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck, man. Uh, you know, maybe stay in touch. I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Okay, thank you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot with Frank Bullock. Of course, very good numbers in Japan when he got a chance to play every day. But, you know, I do want to jump into, you know, something I wrote about in Bases Empty blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing. Uh, we talked a little bit about the managers in Major League Baseball, and I know I've brought this up on other programs before, but, you know, if you remember the fact that, you know, we, we used to have an era. We used to have a time where it used to be so many major league managers with experience that were proven that happened to be available. The last couple of years, you know, you look at the likes of Tony La Russa and Bobby Cox and Joe Torre and Cito Gaston and, of course, you know, with Davey Johnson, Charlie Manuel. You look at all these managers that are getting older and the time is kind of passing them by, not necessarily based on their own performance, but they're getting older. And it's time for, you know, a new sense of younger blood to come in there. And you've seen that really predominant over the last three seasons. And obviously the Cubs hired Rick Renteria as their new manager, the original Florida Marlin in 1993. 
Uh, the Tigers hire Brad Ausmus, the Nationals with Matt Williams, and the Reds, Brian Price. Obviously, the thing that they all have in common is none of them had major league experience. Well, the Phillies fired Charlie Manuel last season, replaced him with Ryan Sandberg. Sandberg is the full-time Phillies manager. The interim tag was removed, and now he's a guy that has no prior managerial experience. Walt Weiss, Mike Redman, Bo Porter, all first-time managers in 2013. The year before that, you remember, the Cubs hired Dale Swaim as their new manager. That only lasted two years. They let him go after this year. Of course, replaced him on Renteria. The White Sox shocked the world, shocked the Major League Baseball world, when they hired Robin Ventura to be their manager. Ventura never managed or coached on any professional level. But the Cardinals did something very similar with Mike Matheny. They kind of took him out of their front office, and the Cardinals... And the fact that they've won the last two seasons, they made the playoffs, they were in the World Series last year, they were in the NLCS in 2012, makes the move look like it's a good move. It looks like Matheny has a ton of experience that you know he didn't have prior to taking the Cardinals' job before the 2012 season. But you know, you, you look at the fact that every good major league manager, and you look at the ones that are out there, one thing they have in common, they were all a first-time manager at one point. Most of the veteran managers, of course, have retired now, leaving few choices for teams to go to when they're looking to replace their current manager. I mean, guys that are out there now, Larry Boa, Charlie Manuel, they're in their 60s, and others don't have a proven track record of success. Eric Wedge, Manny Acta, guys like that. So the new blood in regards to MLB managers is something that has to happen every 15, 20 years. Right now, we're in that era. We're at that time. You look at you know, Renteria, who's been a good candidate for a while. I think he's going to be all right in Chicago. The Cubs are going to improve. Obviously, he's going to have time to get that team better. The Cincinnati Reds hired Brian Price, who has a very good track record as MLB pitching coach in Seattle, Arizona, and Cincinnati. You know, he, he, is, he, he continues a trend of pitchers getting an opportunity to manage in the big, big leagues. You know, the Reds are a team that has done well for a while. They got a good team. The team is set in place. Price has been there. There's a chance that that could work out. Brad Osmonds has been a top managerial candidate over the past couple seasons. Takes the biggest responsibility with the Tigers. But there's a good chance that that team will be good. Same thing with the Nationals and Matt Williams. So, you know, you're looking at guys that are going to get their shot right now in the big leagues, and it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. And obviously them being good managers down the road, and even if they end up taking a second or a third job, will have probably some success based on where they started out. But this is a time in Major League Baseball where we need to see new blood in there because the veteran managers, the guys that have been around, Dick Williams isn't around anymore. You know, you can't hire Billy Martin. You know, you look at a lot of these teams, you know, there are no more retreads that are worth hiring now. You're better off bringing in your own guys. So I want a big thanks to Len Berman and Frank Bullock for being part of the show with me. We'll be back with a whole nother hour after this.